The COVID-19 pandemic has presented a marathon where the finish line is only discussed in hypotheticals. At the time of recording of this episode, the official counts report that 425 million people around the world have had COVID-19, and sadly, almost 6 million people have died. Closer to home, Melbourne has also had the distinction of having endured the world's longest lockdown, which only ended after 262 days. In this episode, we will explore our understanding of COVID and the skin, how it has evolved, and what new information is available. Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Alvin Chong. I'm a specialist dermatologist at the Skin Health Institute and adjunct associate professor at the University of Melbourne. And I am Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, medical educator, and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Alvin and I are your co-hosts today. Before we introduce our special guests, I'd like to start by acknowledging the owners of the lands on which we are meeting today and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. I'm meeting with you today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to the elders. As you can guess, this episode is being recorded on Zoom. Firstly, we have a guest that is familiar to many Victorians, Professor Alan Cheng. Professor Alan Cheng is Professor of Infectious Diseases Epidemiology and is Director of the Infection Prevention and Healthcare Epidemiology Unit at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. From July 2020, for a year, at the height of the pandemic, Alan was appointed Victoria's Deputy Chief Health Officer. For a year, he became a regular fixture on our screens as part of the regular press conferences. And I would tell my kids, that's Alan. I went to medical school with him. Alan was also the recent co-chair of ATAGI and is heavily involved in the vaccination program in Australia. He is, without doubt, one of the heroes of Australia's COVID response, and we are very proud to have him with us. Welcome, Alan. Thanks so much, uh, Alvin. I have to say that I am very much not a dermatologist. I'm looking forward to learning a lot today. Our second special guest, joining us from Harvard Medical School in Boston, is Associate Professor Esther Freeman. Dr. Freeman trained as an epidemiologist with a PhD from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and is also a specialist dermatologist. Currently, Dr. Freeman is the Director of Global Health Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and is a member of the American Academy of Dermatology COVID-19 Task Force. She founded and directs the COVID-19 Dermatology Registry, which is an international effort with thousands of cases from over 40 countries. Dr. Freeman has published seminal papers on the cutaneous manifestations of COVID-19 and is a world authority on this subject. We are very honoured that Dr. Freeman is joining us. Esther, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be joining you and, and happy to be back. I kind of want to paint a picture to our listeners as to the state of play with covid Maybe I invite Alan. What's the state of play with COVID in Australia, particularly in Melbourne where we live? I mean, I know, but maybe you can paint a picture to everybody else. Yeah, so basically in Australia, we're joining the rest of the world. So we have fairly successfully suppressed COVID more or less, perhaps not quite so much in uh, Victoria than in other states of uh, Australia. Um, but now since uh, particularly late December, early January, the rates that we're seeing are comparable to what everyone else has seen. But that said, because you know most of the population in Australia is now vaccinated, our the deaths from COVID are much much lower than in, uh, that other countries have seen. And so I think in Victoria, there's been about two thousand, just over two thousand people have died of uh, COVID. And I think if we had you know had the rates that other some other countries have uh, seen, you know we would have had ten or twenty thousand uh, people die from COVID. So we've avoided the worst of it. But that said, we're now facing the challenges that every other country has in terms of living with COVID. And Esther, what about the current state of play in the USA, particularly in Boston? Yeah, we've really, you know, had a, a lot of change, I think, since I last came on, on your podcast, um, which was earlier in the pandemic. Boston was one of the sites in the US that had a very early 
first wave of COVID-19. We've actually had several very large waves and our latest with Omicron um, was also very substantial. Right now, as we're speaking um, in this, what's for us is the spring of, of 2022, um, we have finally kind of hopefully reached the crest and come down the other side of our Omicron wave. The majority of our population is vaccinated, um, but we still have large sectors of the United States with a lot of vaccine hesitancy or resistance against the vaccine. And where I live in the Northeast um, of the United States in Boston, and we have a very high vaccination rate, but that is certainly not true for all parts of the United States. Thank you very much, Alan and Esther, for sharing that with us. So in this episode, we will explore how skin conditions associated with COVID infections have evolved. Are the skin manifestations we saw early in the pandemic the same as what we see now in the era of Omicron and vaccinations? What does COVID do to establish skin disease? What skin problems occur after COVID vaccination and what can we do about it? What is maskne and how are our behaviors in the COVID era impacting on skin disease? We also touch on the impacts of COVID in certain patient groups, such as immunosuppressed patients, and just touch on the overarching health effects of the pandemic. So this will be an action and information-packed episode. I might start us off in some more familiar territory. When the pandemic first hit us in early 2020, the buzzword was COVID toes. Esther, can you just remind us what this is? Absolutely. And I, I think this continues to be a little bit of more of a controversy than I expected that has kind of followed through the pandemic. Um, so COVID toes, what we call COVID toes, are actually pernio or chill lanes, depending on where you are in the world. You might call it pernio or chill lanes. Um, if you imagine pre-COVID era, when we saw pernio or chill lanes, it was typically a reaction to being exposed to cold or wet conditions. I had someone in Boston the other day who walked across a snowy field in flip-flops and they developed pernier chillblains of their toes. It's not direct frostbite, but it's basically an inflammation of the skin that happens in response to cold. What really surprised us early on, and we saw a lot of this in the first wave um, in Boston, for example, um, was that people were coming in with pernier chillblains after SARS-CoV-2 infection. I think where some of the controversy comes in is that certainly lots of patients who have what we suspect might have been COVID toes or pernier chillblains during the pandemic, we're actually testing negative um, for SARS-CoV-2. And I think this is probably a mixed picture. I think, number one, do we see pernier chillblains after SARS-CoV-2 infection? Absolutely. But are all pernier chillblains that occur during the pandemic related to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 infection? Definitely not. So I think we're kind of seeing a little bit of a mixed picture here. But um, that was really one of the first skin manifestations that we've that we saw um, after SARS-CoV-2. COVID-2 infection. And we've gone on now to know that there are more than 30 different skin findings after COVID-19. I remember um, uh, reading about a, um, a study where they basically biopsied pernio and were able to demonstrate um, coronavirus particles in the blood vessels. So there's definitely it accounts for some perniosis. You know, even the, interestingly, that study has actually been a little bit controversial. There is a new study that was just out a couple of days ago in PNAS, where they demonstrated that perhaps there was an issue with staining. So I still think that perniential lanes, you know, can be a result of SARS-CoV-2. I have patients where I, you know, I know they had SARS-CoV-2, they PCR tested positive, you know, a week or two later, they've gotten pernia of their fingers and their toes. It's very hard to explain just by you know, them walking barefoot, you know, in their house um, when you see pernio of multiple areas and multiple digits right after an infection. Um, but it's interesting. I think that uh, I think we're still learning a lot about this. And there's some Yale immunology labs that have been involved looking at, at these uh, at these patients. So I, I think it's a surprisingly complex topic. I, you know what? I, before the pandemic, I had no idea I was going to spend so much time talking and thinking about toes. And it's uh, it's been surprising. Uh, you you talked about you know the forty other manifestations. So, so what are more classical cutaneous manifestations of COVID that you you see, Esther? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, recognized, as you mentioned, a, a numerous different skin manifestations after COVID. Some of the most common are things like morbilliform rashes. Morbilliform means measles-like. Doesn't mean these people have measles. They just have a viral rash that can look 
in a measles-like pattern. That's a very common nondescript viral rash we can see after lots of viruses. We're also seeing urticaria, which is hives. Um, but we're also seeing some things that are, you know, a little bit more severe. So, for example, retiform purpura, which is small clots underneath the skin. And we're seeing those in patients who are very, very sick, um, who are often developing clots elsewhere in their body. And then you're actually seeing that on their skin as well. So just a huge range of different skin reactions. And we really feel that these different skin reactions are very much how the immune response of the individual is responding to the virus. Just the same way that some patients could just have, you know, loss of sense of taste or smell. And on the other extreme end, they could be in the ICU on a ventilator. It's the same with the skin. It really depends how everyone's immune system is responding to the virus. Could I jump in with a question, perhaps, Savon? I was just wondering, to what extent does those manifestations that you see on the skin probably reflect the underlying immunopathology? So, for example, there's talk of, you know, endothelial dysfunction and clotting as a hypercoagulable state as part of COVID. Is that seen with other diseases that cause Blinds and some of the manifestations that you're talking about? Are there other diseases that have similar uh, dermatological manifestations? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that what we see with the endothelial dysfunction specifically is often more with the clotting or bleeding side of things. And actually, perineal chilblains, when we biopsy, we look at it, it's actually really an inflammatory process and is not so much endothelial dysfunction. But things like retiform purpura, where we see this very angular bruising on the skin, is probably related to endothelial dysfunction. And interestingly, we can see this same type of reaction, for example, when there are other problems on the kind of thrombosis pathway. So you can see retiform purpura, for example, in other intensive care unit patients who have clotting issues and clotting disorders related to their acute disease. Um, Indeed, we do see it in other conditions. And I think what's so unique and interesting here is that I can't think of anything else in dermatology, Ellen, that can cause so many different things. We used to think of syphilis as the great mimicker. I don't know if you were taught that in medical school, maybe this is like an American thing, right? Everyone calls syphilis the great mimicker. Well, I would argue that COVID is the great mimicker because everything would come in and we'd be like, wow, we've seen this in something else, you know, and here it is in COVID. And it was like 30 skin conditions later. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the faculty members I was working with at UPenn talked to one of my research fellows and he said, you know, are you sure you want to keep working with Esther? Cause all you're going to see is all of dermatology. Actually, Alan, did you see much skin manifestations of COVID in the patients you've looked after in Victoria? Yeah, look, to tell you the truth, I haven't looked after that many. And uh, the, I think the other thing about, you know, specialists that are not dermatologists is that, you know, we often see stuff and don't really notice it. You, you know, we're notoriously bad at uh, managing and diagnosing skin conditions. So, you know, my understanding of dermatology is, is, is it red and itchy if not call a dermatologist? So, uh, yes, I, I mean, I think we do and people do complain of them and and I think you know we'll talk about this later but uh, you, you know what are the sort of long COVID manifestations of the, in dermatology I think it's going to be an important question but you know it probably is very much underdiagnosed by clinicians. Okay well I mean, we, we all have dermatological patients who are reasonably controlled um, and the most recent one was quite fascinating she she caught COVID um, over the Christmas break and she had been on a biologic drug called dupilumab which blocks IL-4, and her normal uh, eczema just absolutely exploded um, after she caught it. You know, went from basic eczema to like almost completely widespread urticaria that took a lot of antihistamines and some prednisolone to control, and it took weeks to settle. Now, and I've also heard of, you know, anecdotally um, cases of psoriasis flaring severely after COVID infection. So Esther, does COVID flare um, existing dermatoses? Um, You can definitely see COVID flaring existing dermatoses. And I think some of the ones that you mentioned are the ones that we see. So we can see flares of atopic dermatitis. We can potentially see flares of psoriasis. The good news is that we aren't seeing this universally. If all of our patients who had pre-existing derm conditions, who when they developed COVID, had massive flares, I think we, our offices would probably be completely overrun. And so the good news is I think that this is a little bit more the exception than the rule. Shifting across to a different patient population and how COVID can affect the skin, a case that really springs to mind is I saw a two-year-old girl at the very beginning of the pandemic and she was miserable and she was She had been unwell for four days with a high fever, conjunctival injection, diarrhea and vomiting. And she was brought in to see me as she developed a macular papular rash in addition to peeling of her hands and feet. 
Interestingly, this was just prior to border closures back in February 2020, and she had recently reunited with a family member who had travelled from an area particularly impacted by COVID. That family member had a chorizal illness with a dry cough, but given the absence of fever, didn't meet the criteria for COVID testing at the time, and neither did this young patient. She was assessed in the emergency department and ultimately made a full recovery. But later, when I first heard about MIS-C, that is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, I immediately thought of this patient. Alan, can you tell us about this condition? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll say just up front that I'm not a pediatrician, but obviously fairly familiar with this condition. So this is the condition that's called MIS-C in the US and the UK name is uh, PIMS-TS or Pediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Syndrome, which related to SARS-2, uh, quite like the US name. The the case definition is, you know, it has cardiac, renal, respiratory, hematological, gastroenterological, dermatological, neurological manifestations. So it is a true multi-system disease and has quite a spectrum of severity. So it can be really quite severe. You know, this lands children in intensive care on, you know, on, on a tropic support and it's very, very scary for parents. But thankfully, it is um, very rare. It is quite similar to Kawasaki's disease, which is uh, probably something that's a bit more uh, familiar and, and common, but uh, it is slightly different that it is in an older age group than, uh, tr- than sort of classic Kawasaki's disease. And there are some clinical differences. So particularly gastroenterological symptoms and particularly abdominal pain seems to be a bit more prominent in this age group and in, in this condition. And so in thinking of the, the skin manifestations, there are several of those. So there's a a rash, you can get um, conjunctival infection and old mucosal changes and then these changes in the peripheral extremities. So the, the rash is described as polymorphous. It's, and again, uh, you'll probably be more familiar with these. It's sort of macular to macular papilla or sometimes morbilliform, but not vesicular. So it doesn't, it doesn't look like uh, chickenpox and commonly begins on the trunk and then spreads over the next few days to involve the extremities. And then characteristically, it involves um, uh, it often undergoes desquamation over the, the first week of illness and then uh, usually gets better as um, fever gets better. And then the other um, sort of uh, classic manifestation is this uh, erythema involving the palms itself. So, so, again, you're probably more familiar with this, but that's a very short list of things that uh, give you that, and uh, particularly with edema of the dorsum of the hands, and then you can get desquamation uh, beginning at the tips of the fingers and the toes and understand that you can get those uh, Bose lines that are sort of signs of severe illness on the nails uh, much later on. So this is a very un- uncommon condition. I'm sure there's probably a few you know, there's a, a spectrum and some of them will probably fly under the radar, perhaps like the, the case you've described. But the, the significance of it is that it can be very, very severe and, uh, and children in, in hospital. I think one thing that we've seen that's, well, many things we've seen that's positive coming out from vaccination is particularly as vaccines start to roll out in the pediatric population is that the incidence of MIS-C um, seems to be going down. I don't know, Alan, if you're seeing this as well in Australia, but you know, certainly as a parent of young kids, I find this very reassuring. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a little bit of concern early on that, you know, because this is probably an immunologically mediated um, condition, it, it you know comes usually, you know, well after the episode of COVID as opposed to sort of the very, as opposed to being a, a direct complication of COVID uh, as a viral illness, that, um, that vaccination might make it worse. But actually, that doesn't seem to be the case. And it is probably one of the best reasons to vaccinate your children. You know, children, as a rule, don't get particularly sick, but this is one disease that, that uh, you probably don't want them to have. So Esther, I've got another question for you. Is there a difference between the manifestations of COVID-19 in the vaccinated versus unvaccinated population? Well, I think, you know, most importantly is that you're absolutely much more likely to get COVID-19 if you're unvaccinated. And because we know that there's such a huge range of different skin manifestations, I would say we're just much more likely to see all of these different skin rashes in our unvaccinated population. So I think, honestly, that's really the major difference. What we do see, I think what you're asking about maybe is some breakthrough infections. So if someone you know, has been vaccinated and gets COVID-19 versus was never vaccinated and gets COVID-19, we don't necessarily, I don't think we have enough data to really say that those rashes are the, the same or different. But usually what I really try to emphasize every time I talk to the media or, or discuss this with my patients is just the overall overwhelming importance of how incredibly safe and effective our vaccines 
patients are, um, and that the most important thing, you know, is to get vaccinated. And the, you know, when I have patients come in, I think we're going to talk about hair a little bit later on. But when I have people worried about, you know, what are the hair effects of the vaccine, I'm like, listen, all of this is going to be so much worse if you get COVID. <laughs> so, like, please get the vaccine because trust me, like, getting COVID, you're going to have more, you know, hair or skin problems than you would from the vaccine itself. So, I just like to re- really emphasize that for people. I guess it's difficult in terms of being able to differentiate skin manifestations between the various strains, you know, alpha, delta, omicron. Yeah. Well, actually, we, you know, I'm really interested in this. And I, I do work a little bit with the World Health Organization in this area. And I think it's been really interesting to see, and Alan, I'm sure you've seen this as well, how the symptoms have changed between the different variants, you know, starting you know, earlier with Alpha and then with Delta and then with Omicron. <laughs> earlier variants, loss of sense of smell or sense of taste, you know, were much more common. And interestingly, now we're seeing with Omicron, that is actually going down a little bit and there's increased sore throat for example. And so some very large studies from the UK and from places in Europe have really started to look at the differences in symptoms across the different variants. And I think that because, for example, sore throat is probably one of the more obvious ones uh, with Omicron. Interestingly, the very prelim studies that we've seen have shown the same percentage of rash. It's usually been skin manifestations usually hover somewhere between 9 and 10% of COVID patients. And these are based on larger studies from the UK and France. And so um, that number seems to be staying about the same. But I really would not be shocked if we find out on further analysis of the data that there are different types of skin rashes with Omicron than there were, for example, with Delta. I think we just don't quite have enough data yet. As a GP, I'm seeing a lot of my patients presenting with symptoms of long COVID. So far, I haven't come across any signs or symptoms affecting the skin. So Esther, can long COVID affect the skin? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's really interesting. We actually wrote about this in, in Lancet Infectious Diseases many, you know, kind of many months ago, looking at some of our patients in the American Academy of Dermatology and International League of Derm Society's COVID-19 registry and looking at patients where they were really having longstanding symptoms that were lasting, you know, well beyond 60 days. In some cases, now I have patients into their month 18 after COVID-19 infection. Probably the most common that I see, the two most common that I've seen um, are perneal chilblains. So patients who never had, you know, COVID toes before and then develop them right after testing positive or a week or two after, um, and then have persisted to unfortunately experience um, inflammation and pain of their toes for at this point, about 18 months. The other group that I've seen a fair number um, having kind of longer duration is actually urticaria or hives after COVID-19. And we've had some patients that we've had in this, you know, off, I should say off-label usage. We've had some patients where we've had to put them on Zolaire um, because they've really developed longstanding hives after COVID-19 that are, are very challenging to treat. So just Zolaire is omelizumab, which is uh, on PBS in, in Australia for the treatment of chronic idiopathic urticaria. So I was wondering, Esa, the, uh, you know, in terms of those long, long COVID conditions, to what extent do they impact on people's uh, quality of life? I imagine urticaria is one that uh, certainly does. Uh, are there many others that really can sort of make people miserable? Yeah, you'd be surprised. I, mean, I think with the perineal chilblains, you would think that maybe someone having a little purple toe, you know, wouldn't necessarily be that impactful. But a lot of these patients experience pretty severe burning that can keep them up at night. I had one patient who couldn't wear shoes for three months. So it's actually pretty, it can be pretty impactful, um, especially when it's chronic. Um, urticaria, very, you know, very itchy and uncomfortable. And in fact, there's been really interesting studies on itch in general, not specific to COVID, saying that if you give people the choice between itch and pain, people will actually choose pain. It's just, just so incredibly challenging to live with. Um, so the impact on quality of life is extremely high. Essa, you spoke a little bit about hair, and this is something which has started to enter mainstream media, COVID hair. And I've actually started to see a few patients who've had COVID and they, they present with you know, quite ex, you know, excessive hair shedding. So can you tell us a little bit about COVID hair? Absolutely. COVID hair. This, I feel like this comes up every, every day. There's always hair. <laughs> so I think there's a couple different pieces of this. So we do know that, you know, not specifically to COVID, but really any febrile illness or any kind of interruption to kind of your regular, you know, immune system or any kind of really a, a 
you know, acute stressful event can cause telogen effluvium, which is this shedding event where two to three months after the particularly stressful event or the febrile illness, for example, this can also happen after flu, you get this massive shedding. People really come in very panicked. I mean, the good news is this is a non-scarring form of hair loss, and we can really be very reassuring for our patients. I think what we're also seeing in patients, even patients who didn't have COVID, is at least in Boston, we're just seeing a ton of telogen effluvium that is really coming from this kind of continued stress of the pandemic. And the way I phrase it to my patients is, listen, nobody's hair got better with stress, right? <laughs> so I think, you know, we're just seeing patients who are having, you know, really chronic telogen effluvium. And, you know, in the U.S., we had a very broad election and we had, you know, multiple waves. And, and so, you know, there was just a lot going on. And so I, I just told my patients, listen, like, you know, there's, it's, you can't really just tell your patients to do more yoga and your hair will come back. You know, I think you had to put this in perspective of like, we are in a global crisis. Do you see um, like this occur in mass sort of stressful events, perhaps like an election or perhaps something else? You know, Alan, I have never thought about that before. And now, you know, in the U.S., we have a lot of fraught elections and in fact, every four years. So uh, now I'm going to be looking for it. We do see it in individuals after, you know, their own stressful events. So, for example, after divorce or after a car crash, um, or we see it after infections. So, for example, after people have had the flu, we also see it very commonly about three months after childbirth. So we can see these kind of mass shedding events. I will say I don't think I've experienced in Boston same flood of kind of community of telogen effluvium all at the same time as I have in the past two years. But, you know, I do think it's really hard to just tell our patients, like, please go do more yoga when you have a global pandemic going on. You know, it's just not going to cut it. And so we really just talk a lot about, um, you know, what the etiology is and really reassuring people that this is a non-scarring form of hair loss and that it will come back. And sometimes we can really just show them the small hairs that will start at the frontal hairline that they're really trying to grow back. It is hard, though, when we have an ongoing pandemic, you know, often with these stressful events, it's kind of a one-off and then people recover. I think we've been experiencing this really kind of global prolonged stress for several years now, and, and that's hard to recover from. It's interesting you mentioned how you often see it when, when people have had uh, the flu, as an example. And anecdotally, as a GP, I would say often in September or October, so in early spring, I would often see a number of patients coming in complaining of hair loss after all the winter colds and flu episodes. That's interesting. Maybe, maybe that's the grand final analyst. <laughs> maybe. So, Esther, this is a controversial one because occasionally I, I would see, you know, people would ask me this, you know, can you actually diagnose COVID from a rash curious to hear that you think this is controversial. I actually don't think this is controversial at all. So I'm fascinated. You have to tell me why you think it's controversial, but I'll, I'll give you my take, which is that um, we know in all patients with COVID-19, approximately about 10% are going to have a rash. And these are, again, from data from really large studies like the Zoe symptom study in the United Kingdom, which is over 300,000 participants, where the NHS actually mails people COVID tests when they have a symptom. So we know that's around 10%. What's really interesting is in that 10%, if you look at the patients who get a rash from COVID, about 20% of them, so one-fifth, their only symptom of COVID is a rash. So of everybody who's going to get a rash in COVID-19, about a fifth, 20% of them, their only symptom of COVID is going to be a rash. So I would absolutely see that, you know, say as dermatologists, we actually have an important duty when people come in, for example, with new onset unexplained urticaria, guess what? One of the first things I do is a COVID test. And I have absolutely diagnosed patients for the first time with SARS-CoV-2 because they came into my clinic with a rash. And it's mainly urticaria that you see? Primarily urticaria, definitely morbilliform eruptions. Perennial chilblains, also known as COVID toes. I would say less so because those tend to be a later manifestation, um, usually one to four weeks after SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, but certainly the other rashes, you know, if we see something that's really unexplained, you know, also I kind of believe that we should be COVID testing everybody all the time. So it's a very low threshold for me to give somebody a COVID test. Uh, Alan, what do you think? Look, it's not on the list of sort of classic symptoms, but I guess from what I'm hearing from Esther's, but perhaps they should be. I guess, you know, a lot of people have rashes and a lot of people have COVID, so they are going to overlap to some extent. But if there are uh, particularly things that non-experts can diagnose, then I think that would be uh, pretty useful. 
And I do think that hives is one. If you have a patient who comes in with new onset hives, you know, certainly if they are allergic to shellfish and they had shellfish last night, well, you know, it was probably the shellfish and not, you know, not the COVID. But um, but if you do have really someone with, you know, unexplained new onset um, urticaria, I have diagnosed several patients that way who had really no other symptoms um, of their COVID-19. So we'll, we'll now talk about COVID vaccine reactions. So there have now been about 10 billion case doses of COVID vaccines given worldwide. You know, that's like 4.35 billion people and nearly 60% of the world is fully vaccinated. In Australia, we're currently one of the highest vaccinated countries in the world. About 80% of the population is fully vaccinated, 40% is boosted. But again, what's interesting is that with with, uh, any vaccine, there have been vaccine reactions. And now we want to just focus on the cutaneous side effects of COVID vaccination this next section. Indeed. As a GP, I've certainly seen a number of possible cutaneous conditions associated with COVID vaccines. Alan, have you seen much of this? Surprisingly few, actually. Uh, so urticaria and dermatitis, obviously, acute dermatitis, obviously, is reported. But those sort of, obviously, the ones that we really worry about, anaphylaxis and so on, aren't really dermatological issues. I actually looked at the, the VAERS system, the uh, VAERS uh, system in the US is, uh, is a vaccine adverse event reporting uh, symptom. And it's important to know this isn't a perfect system. It doesn't mean every report is, you know, every time report, someone reports something, it's due to the vaccine. And then not every, obviously every time someone gets uh, a side effect, particularly dermatological, that they will report it. But there are actually only about 4,000 reports of urticaria and a few hundred reports of uh, dermatitis. And then maybe another 2,000 reports of, you know, rash not otherwise specified. And so, you know, that's maybe 10,000 reports in total. And if you consider that, I think it's in the US, like 250 million people have received a COVID vaccine in the US, that's really remarkably low. I mean, that may well be un- underestimated and people may well just you know, end up uh, going to see a doctor or uh, someone else and or, or not even present at all with uh, a cutaneous reaction and, and then it just goes away. But it does seem to be very uncommon. I'd be interested in Esther's uh, experience about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think I completely agree with you, Alan, that the really big picture is that 10 billion vaccines have been given and we're really not seeing this flood of, you know, massive cutaneous reaction. So overall, I'm really reassured by the data. And, you know, what I tell people is I'm a COVID vaccine, you know, basically reactions researcher. And all this has done, the more I learn about it, the more confidence I have in the vaccine. You know, both my kids were enrolled in vaccine trials. Uh, My son was one of the first 50 children in the United States to get vaccinated. And I, you know, I remember people asking me, like, you know, you're comfortable with sending your son into like a phase one clinical trial. And I was like, absolutely. I have a lot of confidence in this vaccine. And the more, you know, we learn about it, the more confidence I actually have. So I will say that kind of first and foremost, I think that we do see in dermatology, uh, we obviously have like a slightly different sample of who shows up in our office, but we do see a, a fair number of uh, mild and self-limited COVID vaccine reactions. So more rarely severe um, reactions. I think one that would be helpful to discuss, but was newer with mRNA vaccines, we hadn't really seen this as much with prior vaccines, is what we call delayed large local reactions, also known as uh, unofficially as COVID arm, which is like my least favorite moniker ever. And I I take full responsibility because I was talking to a reporter very late at night after a very full clinic. And I jokingly said we could call it COVID arm. And then I very quickly said, no, that's the wrong name. It should be COVID vaccine arm. And then USA Today, the next morning, there it was, you know, Dr. Freeman calls it COVID arm. And I was like, no, this is absolutely not what it's called. So that, you know, I learned my lesson. I don't talk to reporters after 9 p.m. anymore. But I think that um, what we do see is this kind of, you know, more commonly with mRNA vaccines than we've seen with other vaccines before is that um, people will get a vaccine and then about a, a seven or eight days later, they'll have kind of this delayed large local eruption um, in that area it can be very, you know, kind of itchy or uncomfortable and red. And early on, what we were seeing was that people were really panicking that this was cellulitis, that this was an infection. So we published uh, a series um, in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, kind of pretty early on in the mRNA vaccine um, rollout um, of physicians at Massachusetts General Hospital who had received the COVID vaccine and had developed this kind of reaction primarily after Moderna, but also with Pfizer. And I think really just to reassure people, you know, this is like a delayed hypersensitivity reaction that goes away. Do they get more uh, acute reactions? 
Yeah, so I think that what's important to, to make a distinguish, distinction between is something like an acute allergic event that Alan was referring to, which the U.S. Centers for Disease Control defines as with the urticaria or hives within the first four hours after vaccination, and that is the anaphylaxis category. What we see more of is this delayed urticaria or delayed hives. And so by delay, we really mean anything after four hours. And what I want to be really reassuring about is that people who get this delayed type of urticaria do not go on to develop anaphylaxis with their second dose or with their booster dose. We have not seen any crossover. And I think the other thing that's reassuring is that if you look at overall COVID vaccine re skin reactions, less than 50% of the time, people are going to have the same reaction again. So I'll repeat that because I think it's so important. If someone gets a COVID vaccine skin reaction, less than half of the time, they're going to get that vaccine reaction again, either with their second shot or with their booster. These reactions tend to improve over time. And I think that's really important. Just touching on the urticaria that you mentioned, there's a, a case that comes to mind where a mother brought in her teenage daughter 24 hours after having the Pfizer vaccine and she'd broken out in an urticarial rash all throughout her body and she didn't have any other symptoms. She was otherwise well. She, um, she also had a negative PCR test for COVID. But the mum was quite anxious about whether this was going to progress onto her having anaphylaxis and also wanted to know whether she should be vaccinated again. Alan, what would you suggest in this type of scenario? Yeah, look, so in general, where someone has an adverse event that is, you know, likely to be due to uh, the vaccine, we generally say, well, you probably might just want to defer that dose until, you know, that condition is resolved. So in this case, you know, if the urticaria resolves, then... Uh, then you know, it probably is uh, safe to do it maybe a week or so after that. In general, also, if parents are worried, particularly about their children or, or you know, people are worried about themselves uh, uh, because of previous reactions, there's a system to um, assess that and, um, and it might be advisable for that uh, person to get their next dose under medical supervision, so as opposed to uh, a mass vaccination clinic. But that's not to say that, you know, there's obviously resuscitation facilities available, but if um, they're particularly concerned, then um, it can be arranged under medical supervision. There are also specialist clinics that can help with the assessment and management of adverse events after immunisation. So in Victoria, there's what we call the VIXIS, uh, the Victorian Specialist Immunisation Service, that uh, their whole, they were set up basically to look at um, any, ad, any major adverse that, event that comes um, after vaccination so that they can be appropriately reported. The other thing about, uh, you know, anything unusual that happens and perhaps, uh, you know, urticaria may or may not be uh, this depending on how severe it is, is that it is assessed and reported. So in Australia, the TGA has a reporting system that can be accessed by consumers or healthcare professionals. And then there's a system to assess these based on, on severity. And then that, um, that uh, specialist uh, clinic, the VIXIS clinic in Victoria and um, other states have their own um, systems also designed to try and assess causality and obviously not everything that happens after a vaccine is uh, due to it but uh, due to the vaccine but uh, where um, you know you see a pattern of these and where the, t the timing is consistent then you know that might be a signal that um, might need to be investigated. Yeah, Alan, I'll, I'll jump in and say that, you know, I think what's tricky when you ask about causation, right, is that I have some patients coming in to me now, since I'm like the COVID, you know, vaccine person in my clinic, and they're saying, you know, I got the COVID shot five months ago, you know, and now I have psoriasis, I think it's the vaccine. And so I think that we do have to be a little, I completely agree that there is a lot of kind of timing of this. And, you know, I've looked into detail about prior studies and prior work in other vaccines prior to COVID, what do people use as the time cutoff? And, and what we there's not actually a specific guideline on this right now, um, but we generally use around three to four weeks. Um, because if you look at some of the delayed onset conditions that we are seeing, it seems to be kind of the maximum time frame. So I generally tell patients if it's if it's been more than four weeks since your vaccine, the likelihood that this is related to the vaccine is is pretty low as our cutoff. And I will say I think just to follow up your point about urticaria. So I work with Dr. Kim Blumenthal, who runs um, a lot of the COVID vaccine allergy at Massachusetts General Hospital and has done a lot of 
you know, work in this area has been published in JAMA. And I think some really great, um, what I find really reassuring is she's actually taken patients who had anaphylaxis to the COVID vaccine and they can actually get their second or booster shots, which is incredible. Now, I wouldn't suggest this person go down to like the local corner store, you know, to their pharmacy and maybe get the booster if they've had anaphylaxis to the first dose. But what's incredible is she's taking these people, even people who have like a true allergy, which I think Dr. Wilms' patients, you know, did not, but for patients who had a true allergy and they can actually still get vaccinated. So what I generally tell people is, listen, there is almost nothing you could show me that would convince me that you should not get more vaccines. So Esther, going back a little bit, you you touched on COVID arm or COVID vaccine arm, as, as it should be called. And I'm quite interested in how we should be managing this. And I've actually seen a number of these cases come through general practice. For example, I had one uh, woman in her mid-20s that came in um, with this large, um, about 10 by 20 centimetre itchy erythematous swelling on her upper outer arm and um, she was wondering if she might have cellulitis or a skin infection in that area and she also wanted to know what we're supposed to be doing to look after it. What should we be doing? So in regards to your patient, um, Dr. Williams, I think that, you know what we saw early on right after vaccines started to get rolled out was we did see this reaction. I think people were con- concerned that it could be cellulitis. And I think what we found out really, this is a delayed type hypersensitivity. And since we know that, you know, unnecessary antibiotics do have their own potential harms, I think it is really important to, you know, to avoid antibiotics in these patients where we think this is a delayed hypersensitivity reaction from the vaccine. Um, in general, so I think most important is really being reassuring. The good news is it really goes away on its own. Um, people often ask, can I get my second shot in the same arm? And the answer is yes. I usually tell people, you know, if there's still a big rash there, like maybe just go to the other side. So you're not injecting into or through a rash, but most patients it's actually resolved by the time they go on to get their second dose. And so it's really up to the patient if they want to get it in the same arm or a different arm. There doesn't seem to be a change in the incidence depending on which arm you get it in. And I think the other thing that's been very reassuring is that we've actually seen the frequency of this go down with the further vaccines, with further vaccinations, I should say. So for example, um, if you got it on day seven or eight after your first vaccine, you might get it a little faster on day two or three with your second vaccine, but actually less than 50% of people will get it again. And then what we've seen with boosters is even less. So I think it really is reassuring that this, it actually tends to get you know, better over time, which is actually kind of conceptually, I'm still struggling with this of why that happens, but it does seem to get better over time. And I usually just say local care, you know, if it's really feeling hot, like a cool pack is fine. Um, antihistamines are fine, like a local topical steroid, um, like a high potency topical steroid to the area for a week or so. Um, and it will just go away on its own. Thank you. Another possible cutaneous complication reported is shingles. And Annalise has a story about that. This actually happened to me after my booster vaccine. And I developed this classical dermatomal shingles to the right side of my scalp four days after my booster vaccine. And having spoken to my GP colleagues, many have reported seeing people with shingles and also HSV after having the COVID vaccine. Alan, can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. That uh, sounds uh, like a fairly painful experience for you. You know, shingles does seem to be triggered by any significant event and presumably the immune response after COVID vaccines may well perturb the control of latent um, VZV or the the virus that causes uh, shingles. But, you know, it really is hard. You know, shingles is actually quite common, maybe not in your age group, (laughs) more than my age group, but you know, I think it's, you know, four per thousand people every year get uh, shingles. If you're over 60, it's about 1% a year of uh, people will get shingles. Everyone's getting vaccinated. So by chance, we will expect some people to get shingles after uh, vaccination, even if they weren't related. So it is actually probably going to take fairly careful studies to know if there are more shingles cases than expected. I think if we see it, it will probably be in the younger population where uh, shingles is obviously less common, but it still does occur in, in younger people. So I think it is difficult to tell. I was really interested in this data and I, I looked back and it's so interesting. If you look at other vaccines, it's not really unique to the COVID vaccine, but you can actually get a, a shingles flare from the shingles vaccine itself, which I thought was fascinating. So moving beyond the effects of infection and vaccination, uh, let's just have a look to see what other ways the pandemic has affected skin health. Very, very early on when we were all told, wash your hands, hand hygiene, there was 
an enormous flare of hand dermatitis in the community from frequent hand washings uh, to reactions to laundry detergent additives. That's a condition called granular parakeratosis. And dermatologists have been seeing multiple, multiple cases of it. One way the pandemic has affected me personally is masni. Uh, I have never had perioral dermatitis, but then I developed it from, from well, mask wearing. And I think uh, uh, nearly every doctor has had that, right? Is, is that correct? Yeah, we're all nodding. I yeah. certainly had it as well, yeah. So Esther, can you just tell us, you know, what is masni? Why does it occur? So masni, I think there's actually probably several conditions that we might be grouping together under masni. There's perioral dermatitis, probably also acne mechanica, um, which really in- involves kind of abrasion to the skin and, and just the fact that there's under occlusion when you're underneath a mask and things are rubbing against your skin that shouldn't be. I think what's tricky is it's really hard to treat because the reality is we're, you know, we're all still wearing masks uh, frequently. So I really have not found what I would consider kind of the special sauce for treating maskne. Some of my initial approaches will be to consider a topical antibiotic, like a topical clindamycin or a topical metronidazole or other topical um, anti-inflammatories. So I think that there's, you know, it's challenging. And I, w- I would love to hear actually what our Australian colleagues are doing, because maybe they have discovered some secret that I don't have. Alan, you, you've got some interesting data on PPE-related skin trauma in, in Australia. Yeah, there was actually a recent systematic review published in our local uh, journal, Infection, um, Infection, Disease and Health, that uh, involved the, the Cochrane Centre. It was a systematic review of sort of the you know, side effects or the adverse events after uh, people using N95 and surgical masks. They found a whole bunch of things, you know, facial itching and irritation was uh, reported in about a quarter of people um, with uh, N95 respirators and about 20% with surgical masks. But the big difference was um, pressure-related injuries, and obviously these do uh, vary in severity. But you know, 57% of people that um, uh, you know regularly used an N95 respirator reported uh, pressure-related in- in injuries, and uh, compared to about uh, 17% for uh, surgical masks. So uh, that's clearly one of the uh, the big differences there, and, and you know one of the concerns. I think we've all seen impressive before and after photos after colleagues have worked long hours in COVID boards. Esther and Alan, what can be done to manage or prevent these? What we've done at Massachusetts General Hospital is to kind of um, institute a little bit of a skincare routine. Well, actually, before I say that, I should say what we've done at Massachusetts General Hospital, I think first and foremost is making sure that you have a properly fit N95. There are multiple different brands out there, and often the fit of the N95, it's important that it be appropriately fit tested, but you might have multiple brands that will actually serve the purpose and effectively you know, block particles, um, but there might be different brands that feel better for your face and your particular facial structure. And so, for example, now when I wear an N95, which when I do wear it, I wear it for about 12 to 14 hours, which is a pretty long shift, um, and I wear a duckbill N95 because I find it much more comfortable for my facial shape. You know, I think early in the pandemic, there was like no choice of N95s. I will say, you know, in the US, anyway, where we were in Boston, you know, we were given maybe one N95 that had to last like several weeks um, and there wasn't like a choice of brands. I think now, at least in the US, we have a lot more availability and possibility of choosing brands. So I think the first and foremost is having, you know, one that's appropriately, not just properly fit test and functional, but even among fit tested masks is finding one that, you know, that works for your facial type and it's comfortable for you. And then what we usually recommend is a general, really kind of gentle, skin care. So usually um, a, a gentle skin cleanser. And I usually recommend that people do wear a moisturizer prior to donning their mask. If they're going to be doing a long shift, having a little bit of a barrier seems to help. We recommend against something like Vaseline or a really thick ointment um, because that actually can affect the integrity of the mask. I think the other thing to be careful of is around putting any type of bandage. We did see early on people putting bandages on the tips of their noses. If you are going to do something like that, it has to be something incredibly thin and you actually have to be refit test with that bandage in place um, because it can alter the functionality of the mask. Yeah, probably the only thing I add to that is uh, for people to take, you know, regular breaks to take off their mask and put a surgical mask on or, or take off their mask altogether to, to have a break. And how about hand washing? You know, the severe hand dermatitis from hand washing, sometimes worsened by hand sanitizer. So what's your advice for people with this problem? Well, my first thing is I think hospital soaps are universally terrible. 
I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe you have better hospital soap in Australia than we do in the U.S., but I'll tell you, our hospital soap is like practically like washing with bleach. So I think in particular, healthcare providers are you know particularly challenged by the fact that it's not like we have really gentle, you know, fragrance-free, um, high-quality hand soap in the hospital. Um, so I think that's, that's one particular challenge. I do, in general, though, um, we do find that actually hand washing tends to be a, when you are using at least a, a non-fragranced soap and a higher quality soap is actually better for the skin than um, than the alcohol-based hand sanitizers, which can be extremely drying. So if people are really struggling. I do say, you know, if you have a choice and you have a sink and some soap and you have some hand sanitizer, I would prefer you use the sink and the soap. So the next kind of big topic we'll deal with is immunosuppression and COVID. I remember that at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all really worried. There was a lot of caution around patients on immunosuppression uh, and also on biologic drugs. Maybe I can invite Ellen to talk to us about some of the issues around immunosuppression. Is mortality or morbidity increase if uh, someone on an immunosuppressant drug catches COVID? Yeah, look, it, it really depends on the type of immunosuppression. So when we talk about immunosuppression, it's an incredibly heterogeneous group. It, you know, there are agents that affect you know, T cells or B cells, and, and they're not all the same. In general, you know, I think of risk on an age spectrum. So, you know, for everyone, your risk of having severe COVID or dying from COVID basically uh, rises about threefold with every decade of life. So, a 50 year old is three times more likely than a 40 year old to run into trouble. Uh, a 60 year old is about three times more likely than a 50 year old to run into trouble. And being EMS suppressed is about the equivalent of being, you know, 10, 20, 50, you know, 10, 15, 20 years um, older. So, that risk sort of just pushes you up that scale. But it really does depend on the type of immunosuppression. And, and even like, uh, you know, the group that we would probably worry most about, um, people with organ transplants, kids with immuno, um, with organ transplants seem to do really well from COVID as opposed to older people with, uh, um, with uh, solid organ transplants. So age is clearly important. Um, the other comorbidities are important and then the type of immunosuppression is important. You've touched on the type of immunosuppression being very important, but which types of immunosuppression are the, the most significant with risks with COVID-19 infection? Yeah, so, so humoral immunity just seems to be the key uh, to, uh, to all of this. So, you know, CD20 inhibitors, so th- uh, things that will, you know, take away all your antibodies and all your B cells is uh, uh, something that's, um, that would be particularly important. Broad immunosuppression, so steroids and uh, you know, multiple agents that affect multiple parts of the immune system would be particularly important. But for example, TNF inhibitors, so this would most commonly, you know, infliximab for Crohn's disease and generally in younger people, doesn't really seem to be much of an issue and uh, they just generally do pretty well. But again, it depends on not having other risk factors and particularly, particularly age. So this question is actually a lot later on, but I'll, I'll move it up because I think it's actually relevant here. So, I mean, we... I remembered Esther and Alan, you know, when, when, like I said, it was complicated, then, then there was a very, very important paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they looked at uh, patients with skin disease on biologic treatments and immunosuppression, and the mortality was actually equivalent to the general population. This was early in the pandemic. So on the basis of that, I think a lot of us were much more comfortable to keep, you know, continue immunosuppression on our patients cautiously. Currently, in this in this um, in this era, you know, I, my personal point of view is if we can, if we don't have to immunosuppress them, we don't. But it, it also depends on the on the severity of their problem, isn't it? I mean, if someone is completely covered with out of control psoriasis or their quality of life is miserable and eczema, then you know this is not some something that we may have to can move ahead with, but cautiously. But what, what do you think about this, um, Esther? 
Yeah, I'm actually, I think I'm with Alan on this one that um, I'm actually pretty comfortable with most biologics um, now. I think the early on, we really were worried that we were going to see a lot more COVID infection with patients on biologics. And I think the data specifically on biologics and, for example, patients on psoriasis with psoriasis, excuse me, has actually been extremely reassuring. Um, and we there was a publication in JACI, Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, um, that looked particularly at psoriasis patients um, who were on um, on biologics, and really, there's not. We don't see an increased incidence. I think where it does come into play is around, you know, things like rituximab or these B cell therapies. I think is very different, and I will say not all immunosuppressives are the same. So if someone's on um, prednisone, you know, it, it, you know, certainly concerning. I think other immunosuppressive medications very concerning. But there are this particular class of biologics I am a little bit more uh, reassured by. And um, Alan, I love the way you described it. That you said it was like aging. You you know, someone's immune system 10 to 15 years. I've actually never thought about it that way. And, and I, I think that's a really nice way of even explaining it to our patients. Yeah. And I think, and I think the other thing is, and I mean, I'm sure you know this better than me, that it often is a clinical decision. There is the, the, you know, the control of disease is important, getting severe, you know, not getting severe COVID is also um, important and having that data to say, you know, for this person that is in front of me, what is actually their risk of severe COVID? So, you know, if you're about to put them on rituximab, then that's obviously a bit different than some of the other therapies that you might be putting them on. And actually, that balance often falls on this. You know, if you feel that you really need to treat the disease to control it, then usually that's the right thing to do. But clearly that balance is affected by, you know, vaccination, uh, particularly now, you know, what their, their occupation, whether they can, you know, effectively shield and, um, you know, there are other risk factors. So um, it is very much a clinical decision. And the National Psoriasis Foundation um, in the US, I don't know how much this is used in Australia, has come up with a really nice set of guidelines for skin patients where they specifically look at the different types of immunosuppression. Um, and the rheumatology literature also has some really great data on different types of immunosuppression and COVID-19. I will say the National Psoriasis Foundation also has some nice guidelines when it comes to um, if one of your patients who's on immunosuppression is going to be getting vaccinated, if they're needs to be any alteration to the vaccine schedule or not and often not but in some cases yes what about the vaccine response if someone is already on an immunosuppressant yeah so in in australia there's um, a list of um, conditions uh, for which a third primary dose is recommended so obviously most covid uh, vaccines are two dose so uh, what we call two primary doses and then a booster um, but for um, immunosuppressed patients, we recommend three primary doses and then a booster. And then that third, the timing of the third one is uh, usually between two and six months after the, the second dose. And um, there actually is uh, advice that's put out by TAGI, the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, that was based on a systematic review to say, well, actually, which agents uh, require a third primary dose and and as I said before, it's it's more related to humoral immunity. So, uh, so agents like rituximab, um, that's a definite one, and some of the ones that are probably have more of an impact on humoral immunity, alemtuzumab, and um, and some of those uh, agents also important. But interestingly, there are agents that it, they probably aren't very immunosuppressive, and the classic, at least in my world, is natalizumab for MS and. So infliximab for uh, Crohn's disease in general probably don't need a, a third primary dose. But obviously there's a, a bit of clinical judgment in there. A lot of people are on more than one agent and uh, that all needs to be considered. Some of my patients who are on immunosuppressant agents have reported that their dosing schedule has been changed around the timing of their vaccine. Can you tell us a bit about this, Esther? Yeah, absolutely. So there are some immunosuppressive medications where it may be recommended to hold a dose for a week or two around the timing of the vaccine, but it's very dependent on the specific medication. I think this is a good opportunity for us to actually look at treatments of COVID, right? Because so, you know, what's the role of monoclonal antibodies like sotrovimab and other antiviral treatments, um, particularly with regards to, you know, patients or immunosuppressed, um, uh, and if they catch COVID, what, what do you do? Yeah, so basically there are three categories of treatments. There's antivirals, um, so perfloxid, molnupiravir, remdesivir. There are antibodies, so the monoclonals that you mentioned, like um, citrovimab, um, but there are also some others. 
and then anti-inflammatories, which are obviously used um, in a slightly different setting. So antivirals are used in early disease, but they have some of their they have their problems. So remdesivir is intravenous, and you have to give it three over three days. So you know, three intravenous infusions. Um, Bavloxid has uh, ritonavir, it's a um, pharmacokinetic enhancer, so there's a huge issue with uh, drug interactions. Almost, if they're on almost any other drug, that uh, you're going to have to um, look that up and uh, talk to a pharmacist probably. Um, molypiravir isn't um, probably as effective as uh, some of the others. The, uh, the issues with the antibodies is that they're, so, so trofimab, for example, is a single-dose intravenous uh, drug, but um, the main issue for all of those is Omicron has probably reduced the effectiveness of all of them, perhaps except uh, for citrofimab. And then um, anti-inflammatories are uh, mainly for um, late disease to turn off the inflammatory syndrome in, in severe COVID. So the, the main indications for antivirals and antibodies are, are early disease, so people that are not uh, yet on oxygen, and if they have risk factors, and immunosuppression is one of those, but also from age and other chronic medical conditions that increase the risk of severe COVID. In general, full vaccination generally means that the treatments are probably unlikely to be effective and probably mostly the, the antibody uh, treatments because you already have your own antibodies, so giving more isn't probably going to help a huge amount. Uh, antivirals perhaps a little bit with that, but uh, there are guidelines for their use and generally people that have received three vaccines, unless they're immunosuppressed, um, probably uh, don't need that treatment because it's probably going to be a fairly mild disease. Okay, well, thank you for that. I think our last section is looking at the wide impact of COVID on general health. In Victoria, uh, there was a code brown declared across all our hospitals for nearly two months. And during this time, all elective procedures were cancelled. And last year, the Medical Journal of Australia published a paper which explored the impacts of the pandemic through a drop in number of cancer diagnoses during the lockdown. So overall, there's a 10% drop in cancer diagnosis. And for us dermatologists, there's a 13% drop in melanoma diagnosis during this time. So my concern is that this is one of the hidden costs of COVID. And we're going to play medical catch up. And I suspect that potentially uh, we might see uh, an increase in cancer mortality because of delayed diagnosis. So it's really made us or made me reflect upon the hidden impacts of COVID and the pandemic, and this is more a philosophical question, but what, what are your thoughts on the true costs of the pandemic in terms of uh, disease in general? Um, Alan and Esther? Yeah, much enough. I mean, from a public health point of view, you know, proportionality of what you do, you know, public health measures of interventions is a very key public health uh, principle. We can do all sorts of things, but what is proportionate to the risk that we face? I have to say that a code brown actually didn't change anything for hospitals or most hospitals because it was really a reflection to say that hospitals were under stress so we couldn't do those other things. So even if we hadn't declared a code brown, we still couldn't do those other things because, you know, the hospitals are full of uh, patients with uh, COVID. So that's really more to reflect that there was a huge impact on the ability to provide care. But uh, thankfully, that's uh, now over on the other side of our Omicron wave. I think there's no doubt that there really has been a you know, huge impact on many health conditions and obviously the community more broadly. And I think the challenge for us as doctors is, you know, how do we continue to pro uh, provide preventative health care in this sort of new normal? So, you know, COVID is going to be with us um, now, um, you know, for a long time. We still need to uh, provide preventative health care. And as you say, you know, playing medical catch up for quite some time. So how are we going to do that? Interestingly, there, there have been quite a number of studies that have looked at what's called excess mortality. So this is um, this incorporates both the positive and negative effects of lockdown. So you may, people may not think this, but uh, you know, positive uh, the positive effect of lockdown is actually there was very little car trauma. It's not to say that um, you know that's we would do that because of that, but you know, if you sort of add up, you know, the the mortality of COVID and, and then the sort of the uh, the other impacts of lockdowns. And despite everything that we've been through, there actually hasn't been any impact on overall mortality in Australia until Omicron arrived in uh, January. So there wasn't, you know, an increase in, in suicide, and, um, other sort of uh, causes of mortality, heart, people not getting their heart attacks treated and so on. Uh, but that's not obviously the whole picture that, that you know, as you say, cancer diagnoses aren't going to show up for quite some time um, mental health is clearly an important issue for the community. But um, it, I think it does say that you know, 
controlling COVID is often good for other things as well, but we will need to, we will be playing catch up for quite some time, I'd imagine. Yeah, I would agree. And I think what we've seen here where we had our lockdown probably a a lot earlier because our lockdown really was with our very first wave with Alpha. And then we've been kind of increasingly less locked down with each subsequent wave. And um, well, we've certainly seen kind of, I think, some more advanced cancers, um, for example, come in. But to answer, Alvin, your question, I think in a more kind of philosophical lens, I think, you know, I think well, one thing that we're going to be dealing with ramification-wise is how do we interact with one another? Um, you know, our relationships, you know, here we are. And Alvin, I feel like I know you well because we've, you and I have talked many, many times during this pandemic, but I've never met you in person, you know, and it's it's just a very, you know, it's just a very different experience and kind of re-engaging with the world. I had my first in-person conference, you know, in two years and, and I literally um, was giving a, a COVID talk and I stood at the front and I realized that I had never talked about COVID to a live human before. I have only given lectures on COVID on Zoom. And there I was in, you know, a room full of a thousand people giving them a lecture. And I was like, I've never given this in person. And to be honest, my hands were sweating. You know, I mean, it's a very different experience. I'm normally very used to that. But I think also when we think about medical, I don't want to sound trite, you know, my hands sweating is not that big a deal. <laughs> but in terms of, you know, thinking also about medical education, you know, how has that, we've, we've had now you know, residents for us trainees that their entire, almost their entire medical training um, has been during a pandemic. And that's very different. What they're seeing is very different. Their experiences are very different. And so I think we're going to be dealing with the ramifications of this, um, you know, for a very long time. Well, thank you, Alan and Esther, so much for your time and sharing your expertise with us. It was a pleasure, and it was so nice to, to meet you, Alan. Yeah, same, and uh, I've certainly learned a lot about dermatology. <laughs> well, thank you to both of you. It's been a fantastic, um, you know, hour and a bit of, of communication, and you've been very generous with your time and also with your knowledge, so thank you. So with that, I want to conclude our second episode on COVID and the skin. And I really, really hope I don't need to do a third edition of this. Alvin, if you need to do a third edition, I'm coming to Australia. Aha, that's right. You (laughs) you know what? Uh, You might get an invitation to do a third edition. Okay. Um, So I think despite all the difficulties and challenges of the last two years, we might now finally be seeing a possible end to the pandemic. And it's really thanks to the combined efforts of many people, governments, scientists, vaccine developers, healthcare providers, public health officials. And I want to close on a positive note if I can. And I dug around and I found two quotes which centered on the word hope. Firstly, the late Bishop Desmond Tutu, who said, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. And that's something which we really clung to when we're in the depths of the pandemic. And the second quote is this, hope lies in dreams, in imagination, and the courage of those who dare to make dreams into reality. And that was from Dr. Jonas Salk, the American virologist who developed the polio vaccine. So it's a good quote to actually end our podcast on. I would also like to thank you, Alvin, my co-host, supervisor, and podcast producer. We would also like to thank the education team at the Skin Health Institute We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly advise you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on the subject, we have an edited transcript of this episode and links to other resources, which can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. 